Futures trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Opinions and statements of guests not affiliated with Everag are their own and do not reflect the views of Everag. The accuracy of their statements cannot be guaranteed by Everag. Hello and welcome to From the Furrow, brought to you by Everag Insights, where each week we talk with subject matter experts on news and topics affecting the grain markets. I'm your host, Britt O'Connell. Let's get started with a review of the markets. Today is Tuesday, December 20th. March corn closed up four and three quarter cents at 6.52 even, and January soybeans closed at 14.78 and a half, up 17 and three quarter cents. Turning to our guest this week, it is our privilege to have Danny Munch, an economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Thanks for joining us today, Danny. Thank you for having me. First off, Danny, can you share with our guests a little bit about who the American Farm Bureau Association is and what some of its goals are? Yeah, definitely. So American Farm Bureau Federation, we're a grassroots advocacy organization, and our really main mission is to be the voice of agriculture. Um, So we're a federation. Uh, Members of American Farm Bureau Federation include our 50 state farm bureaus, as well as Puerto Rico Farm Bureau. Uh, Then they have their own members in each of their county farm bureaus. And then our farmers and rancher members, about 6 million of them are members of those counties. Uh, So every year, all the states and counties and on the federal level, uh, we go through an intensive grassroots policy process uh, where our members decide priorities and positions to take on different uh, policy uh, legislation for the new year. Uh, So at the AFBF level here in Washington, D.C., our policy team works with the Hill to make those voices of our members heard. Um, I'm part of the economics team, one of five. Uh, We support our policy team on the number side, so providing statistics, uh, keeping track of markets and issues, keeping our farmers and ranchers informed. Uh, we also support the education side of our mission, so beyond advocacy. We also do the education piece, uh, so writing reports on markets, trends, and different legislation and how different uh, and changing uh, general trends are going to impact our members, uh, for consumers, for officials, as well as, well as our members. Uh, in my portfolio, I currently cover dairy markets and policy, transportation and infrastructure, disaster and disaster assistance, uh, a lot of Western issues and, and, and specialty crops, among some others. Uh, we are currently in the middle of our policy development process. Our states are actually headed to Puerto Rico next month in San Juan uh, for our annual meeting where our delegates will, will vote on our resolutions. And we might have different directives on different issues, for instance, in the upcoming 2023 Farm Bill. Uh, so that's sort of an overview of Farm Bill and what we're doing right now. Well, Danny, if you're looking for anybody else to join you down in Puerto Rico, I, I think I can probably manage to make that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to the ward one weather, that's for sure. No doubt. You mentioned that transportation was something that you specialize in. It's been the top of mind for you know, American agriculture for a number of years now, really since the pandemic. What are some of the the key issues that you and your team are monitoring right now in the transportation realm? Yeah, absolutely. So we've sort of seen this, you know, over the past couple of years since COVID basically started, this transition of issues between different modes of transportation. So if we kind of shift back a little, starting with COVID, we saw this massive switch in, you know, how consumers behaved. Um, They were spending a lot pre-pandemic, they were spending a lot of money on live entertainment at restaurants, service-based consumption. Uh, When COVID-19 hit, people were at home. They were spending a lot more money on household items, buying air fryers, you know, filling their homes with things to keep busy. And what that did is it put a lot of pressure on imports from other countries, places like Asia that that produce a lot of 
household goods, a lot more pressure on retail food markets. Um, so that pressure accumulated into what resulted on our Western ports and our, and our ocean barge network, which was lots, hundreds of boats waiting outside of LA port, for instance. Uh, we just didn't have the capacity um, to process all the imports uh, that, that consumers wanted in this country. Um, so to, to date, we've been keeping up with a lot of those ocean barge issues as they continue to generally improve. Uh, notably, we saw some of the capacity that wasn't able to be handled on the West Coast move over to the East Coast. Uh, so recently, the, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey are set to be number one in moving containers for the fourth month in the row this year. Uh, so that's a change. LA and Long Beach used to be uh, number one previously, but some of that capacity has since shifted. Concerns surrounding some of the state laws in California, as well as unresolved port negotiations with those unions, continue to add some uncertainty to those Western ports. Um, on our end, we're also concerned about low container and equipment inventories. Uh, so the availability of container chassis, uh, so that spe specialized equipment that moves containers uh, from barge onto rails or onto trucks, there's a shortage of those, those chassis. Uh, I remember earlier this year reading a statistics uh, that the average cost of a chassis was $7,000, and that jumped to $21,000, so almost a tripling, uh, which is pretty insane for, for shippers to deal with. And then that cost often gets shifted over to uh, you know our ag shippers. Currently, there's very few chassis, very few ships and containers domestically produced. Um, the bulk of that takes place in one country, and that country is China. Um, they control about 95% of global maritime container inventory production about 85% of intermodal chassis, so anything that's moving on rail and trucking, uh, and over 40% of all ships produced in the world. So that's putting a lot of our freight network and the equipment we need to, to move product uh, really in the hands of one country, uh, which, is, which is risky in the long run. Uh, I mentioned rail. We continue to monitor rail service quality quite heavily. Uh, we know over the past few years, the rail service quality has dropped quite a bit. We have a lot of our ag, our members, uh, you know, having difficulties getting their orders filled. Um, we've averted the rail strike, um, but there's many challenges that still remain. We generally do quarterly analyses uh, related to rail service metrics as a way to measure whether improvements are happening or not. Uh, one of the main statistics we look at is what's called an unfilled grain car order. Uh, so each railroad, each, each class one railroad uh, reports this to the STB a little bit differently. But in general, an unfilled order is uh, the number of grain cars a shipper, say, a grain elevator ordered, but they did not receive from a class one railroad. Uh, so, for example, if a grain elevator ordered 10 cars from a class one railroad and they only received seven, then that would leave three unfilled orders. Uh, so in quarter three, that was the last analysis that we did. The number of unfilled orders one or more day overdue dropped about 50 percent from quarter two. So that's a good sign. Um, but they remain about 1,200% above uh, last year still, uh, so quite elevated. There were 104,000 reported unfilled orders, one or more day overdue in quarter three, most by Union Pacific and BNSF railroads. Uh, Union Pacific reported an average of about 6,000 unfilled orders a week, BNSF around 2,000 unfilled orders a week. That's one or more day overdue. When we look at, all right, 11 or more days overdue, over 70, 80% of those reported one day overdue or also 11 or more days overdue. So that time gap really impacts shippers' abilities to get goods where they need to go. That puts your grain elevators, your, your, your people that are you know refining grains into feed, your livestock operators at risk down the line. Um, one of the biggest challenges that the class one railroads still point to is the labor challenges. You know, once the pandemic hit, 
many class one railroads laid off a large portion of their labor force, and they really haven't been able to reach those pre-pandemic employment levels. BNSF and UP, which control about 60% of our grain movement in the United States, uh, they still are about 5 to 10% below their pre-pandemic employment. So that really remains a barrier, and we continue to, to monitor that as well. Definitely you've got some issues there, but uh, certainly appreciate that uh, we're making strides in the right direction. Barge freight was a really big concern this fall. As we saw, Mississippi River levels drop to record low levels south of St. Louis. And this was a big concern for a lot of our clients as that's really a key time for soybeans in particular to be moving uh, down river and, and across the sea. What is the current situation on the Mississippi River? Are conditions improving at all? Where do we sit that way, Danny? Yeah, so Mississippi River levels and their impacts on grain and fertilizer and really any other ag inputs that we use, also a very big concern to our members across the country. Um, thankfully, we have seen some recent improvements in water levels along the Mississippi River. Uh, there's been heavy rain and snowfall in, in different parts of the watershed of the Mississippi River, and that contributes to better water flow further down the line. It's funny, one of my one of my team members just yesterday, uh, he, he grew up on the border of North and South Dakota, which is part of the Mississippi watershed. And he just showed me a picture of his church, um, one story church, and there was snow all the way up to the top door. And it was just the steeple sticking out of the snow. Uh, so see, he said that they're going to they're going to flood when that snow melts. Uh, that's going to be not great for them in the, in the short run. But in the long run, that's going to help the Mississippi uh, River water levels and, and the barges flow further down river. We've been closely tracking some of the issues and pricing related to barge rates along the river. Barge rates are kind of reported differently than some other transportation. It's reported as, 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 as what's the percentage increase over a benchmark. So the prices are really reported as a percentage. So if it's 100, it's 100% over the underlying benchmark. Uh, so in general, over the past few years, barge rates had, have hovered around 500% below their benchmark. In late October, uh, when we had a lot of these major issues, record low water levels, uh, barge rates peaked about 2,400% above their benchmark. So massively increased barge rates just because you had to lower the amount of capacity that was being moved on barge. The number of barges moving down were lowered. Uh, the volume wasn't as high on each barge. Things of that nature pressured the supply and, and increases pr increased prices quite a bit. More recently, they still remain elevated, but they're about 800% above the underlying rate instead of 2,400%. So that's a good, good sign. Um, we do have to remember, though, you know, Mississippi River region is just so important to grain movements. Uh, between 2015 and 2019, 95% of corn, 94% of soybeans, and 45% of wheat moved by barges uh, traveled through the Mississippi River system to Louisiana, a lot of that to export. So for farmers to have ex uh, access to those export um, markets that they need, you know, the Mississippi River is uh, essential. Uh, you know, beyond barges, we continue to monitor some other issues related to trucking as well. They're facing their own employment issues. One thing that's been revealed to me is just, you know, how fragile some of our transportation networks are. A lot of them are based on the infrastructure that exists in very specific areas. So if something is impacted in those areas, we can't easily shift capacity. Uh, so looking at ways we can make our transportation more fluid and more reactive to different market disruptions uh, is going to be important moving forward. Also, just quickly mention, you know, movement of, of DAP and MAP fertilizers in the fall is really important as farmers prepare for next year planting. 
And much of that moves on bars and barges and rails. So minimizing some of these impacts is going to make sure we keep costs for fertilizer down as well. Well, we're certainly doing our part here. Wisconsin is slated to receive up to a foot of snow in the coming weeks. So hopefully we have a snowy and wet winter across the Midwest and recharge those soil levels as well as Mississippi River water levels. Yeah, not great for staying warm, but <laughs> for the river. <laughs> no doubt. We're heading into farm bill season. You mentioned that's something that's a focus of the American Farm Bureau Association. What provisions should grain growers and ag shippers keep an eye on as this new bill is discussed? Yeah, so when it comes to the farm bill, there's not too, too many provisions specifically linked to ad shipping or some of the freight issues I've spoke about. Uh, most of that kind of occurs in other legislation. Uh, there are a number of priorities that American Farm Bureau Federation has and our members have that are important to grain growers overall and the farm economy in general. We've heard from many of our members a lot of the risk management programs that are in place in the farm bill, like ARC and PLC, and in the dairy world, dairy margin coverage. They are very well liked. Our members don't want those to be changed. They want them to remain effective. Um, so the main point there is we want to preserve the continuation of these programs in the next farm bill, as well as preserve the funding. Uh, we also want to get rid of any overburdensome regulations when it comes to applying and qualifying for any of those programs. We also know how important inflation has been as far as an impact on our ag economy. And one of the things that inflation has an impact on is, is credit in the future. We think credit's going to be a big issue moving forward for farmers and ranchers as inflation rises and the Fed tries to counter the, that inflation with higher interest rates. It means that farmers are going to be paying a lot more money for to get operating lines of credit, to buy land, equipment, seed, fertilizer for the next year. So, you know, the Farm Bill has some loan programs in place. Uh, we want to make sure that those programs are in line with current farm level expenses, what farmers are actually paying in, in the current economy. And again, they don't have too many different overburdensome uh, application processes that make it difficult for farmers and ranchers to apply. Um, there's so many different pieces you can get into when you look at the conservation side. But mainly one of our main priorities there is make sure land is kept in production while maintaining support for sustainable practices. So when we look at things like the Conservation Reserve Program, which you know pays farmers to put aside land in sort of retirement phase uh, in a way uh, to preserve some of that land, uh, we want to make sure you know we have a priority to cap some of that CRP acreage to limit enrollment so you still do have enough uh, high production areas. You know, we have all these international problems going on, Ukraine-Russia deal. We want to make sure that we're, we're supplying the world market uh, with, with our great product. And lastly, we, you know, we, we really want to emphasize the importance of a unified farm bill. And what do I mean by that? Right now, about 70% of the farm bill's nutrition programs. And that might not seem very important to our, our grain growers. But when we think about it, every year, each time we have a census, there's less and less people in rural America and more and more people in urban America. And urban Congress people, which there are going to be more and more of as more and more people live in urban areas, they don't care as much about uh, rural issues unless there's something to get them at the table. And the nutrition piece of the Farm Bill gets them at the table. So it, it really gets our stories in front of legislators that might not normally see them. So making sure we keep nutrition in the Farm Bill is very important to us as well. Speaking of nutrition, it's that time of year again where everybody's getting prepared for Christmas dinner. The Farm Bureau tracks food costs. You mentioned inflation, and we all have felt the pangs of it this year. How does the Farm Bureau expect this year's Christmas dinner costs to vary from years past? Yeah, definitely. 
Um, so, you know, in the past couple of weeks, we've seen a slight cooling in inflation, nothing that's going to make your Christmas dinner anytime cheaper than it has been in the past. So don't get excited there. Um, but, you know, there's food prices are going to remain elevated this year. For instance, this past month, grocery prices are still expected to be about 12 percent uh, overall uh, higher than last year. When we kind of dive into some of the specifics, uh, flour is expected to be up, up about a, a 25 percent, bread, 16 percent, uh, ham. Uh, 8%, cookies, 20%, turkey, 20%, eggs, 50%, milk, 15%, and butter, 30%. Uh, if we kind of break down a few of these, uh, when we look at poultry, eggs, turkey, that sort of thing, uh, we, we're very aware of the high path avian influenza issue that continues to impact the country. Uh, there were heavy rates of exposure of high path avian influenza when birds were heading, heading north for the, uh, for the summer. Um, so, you know, we lost a lot of birds early on in the spring, and now they're traveling south again over the fall. So we've, we've seen that influx again, that heavily in, in, uh, decreases your supply of, of poultry to produce eggs, to produce turkeys. That's why we saw just such elevated turkey prices. We continue to see very high egg prices. On the grain side, you know, we have ongoing drought in the West. We've, it's been pretty endemic for the past few years. That's going to push down your supply of wheat. We know some of our biggest wheat states like North Dakota, Montana, South Dakota, they suffered massive losses uh, in wheat uh, just because of dry conditions. You also have the ongoing uncertainty with the Russia-Ukraine conflict that further pressures supplies globally, and that kind of lifts up prices as well for some of these food items or further processed food items as well. Um, on the dairy side, you know, those prices have remained relatively strong production which generally kind of jumps up as soon as dairy farmers see better prices. It hasn't increased quite as hand in hand as it usually does. So prices have been able to be stabilized a bit more. Holiday consumption of butter is always strong. Uh, so the, that class four price has benefited as people buy a lot of butter for cooking in the holiday season. And, you know, even though these prices may look better, uh, overall farmers and the input prices and the marketing costs, the freight costs, as I mentioned before, those are all heightened as well. So the individual farmer level income is going to be very variably dependent on the region they're in and all these other factors that they're facing. Uh, so that's an important thing to remember as well. Just because prices are high doesn't mean that's being translated to our growers. Danny, it was a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for your time. If listeners would like to learn more about the American Farm Bureau Federation, where can they go? Absolutely. Easiest way to do it. Go to your nearest search engine on your phone or computer and type in fb.org. Uh, if you want to find any economic analysis, head to the tab that says latest and then market intels and our most recent reports are listed there. If you've enjoyed listening to From the Furrow, subscribe to our podcast, share it with a friend, or give us a review. Thank you to Corey Romero, our wonderful producer, and Paige Driscoll for mixing and mastering today's show. And now for a special rendition of an American Christmas classic the 12 days of Christmas brokerage style. On the 12th day of Christmas, my broker gave to me 12 WASD reports, 11 export announcements, 10 drought scares, nine soybean rallies, eight contract expirations, seven Fed rate hikes, six butterfly spreads, five key reversals, four equity runs, three Brazilian rains, two put spreads, and a first day margin call. And from all of us at EverAg, Happy Holidays.